Welcome to episode one of The Kentucky Lawyer. I'm Brad Clark, a criminal defense and DUI lawyer based in Lexington, Kentucky. Every month I interview a different Kentucky attorney about how they got started, what's going on in their practice, and how they plan to stay on top in the ever competitive practice of law. Every episode is approved for one hour of Kentucky CLE credit absolutely for free. Details available at kylawshow.com. Today I'm interviewing Joe Surrey, the principal attorney of the firm I work for, Surrey & Associates. Joe practices in Northern Kentucky and Cincinnati. He has nearly 20 years experience defending against DUI and other criminal offenses. Prior to becoming an attorney, Joe worked for five years as a police officer, giving him a unique perspective on the criminal justice system. Joe is a frequent CLE speaker on criminal defense topics and the co-author of the 2020 edition of Kentucky Driving Under the Influence Law from Thomson Reuters. Here's my interview with Joe. Okay, Joe, so tell us about your practice. How did you get started? Well, uh, I started practicing law in 1999. I was a uh, Xavier University undergrad and then a UC Law School grad. And while I was in law school, I had clerked for an attorney, a local attorney here in Cincinnati. And uh, he had a pretty decent practice. And I thought, you know, when I was in law school, my, my plan was to be a corporate lawyer or go work for a big firm. But after clerking for this attorney and seeing the freedom that he had and the opportunities that presented themselves uh, as a solo attorney, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do that. I didn't have any kids. I wasn't married. Um, I was working as a firefighter and as a police officer at the time. So I had additional sources of income, which was uh, really important to be able to survive and finance a practice at the same time. So um, that's how I got my start. I just hung out my shingle, rented space from another lawyer and, and slowly grew from there. You know, as I um, got more and more cases, I was able to uh, get my own office and then hire a support person. And then eventually down the road uh, after a number of years, uh, started hiring some attorneys to work with as well. So when you started, um, were you kind of taking everything that came in the door or had you already decided I'm going to be DUI criminal defense or what was your thought process there? Yeah. So actually when I started, I did no criminal defense because I was a police officer. And so I felt that it would be, um, awkward to be arresting someone on a Friday night and then defending someone else on a Monday morning. And so, uh, what I did at that time, at least, was uh, focus on civil litigation. I did basically anything that would come through the door that I, I felt comfortable handling, from landlord-tenant disputes to auto accidents. So one of the advantages that I had was um, with the time I had spent at the fire department and the police department, I had a broad base of, of friends and colleagues in that area. So um, they all knew that I was in law school. They all knew I had passed the bar exam. And so as they needed some help in legal issues or they had friends that needed help, they would call me. And so that was a big, a big, um, you know, bump to my practice starting out as I already had a, a group of folks that would look to me for, for legal assistance. And I think that made a big difference in the long run. Sure. As far as like the DUI side of things goes, it really wasn't until about, 2001, 2002, that I started going into criminal defense. Um, I left the police department in 01. And uh, one of the reasons I left was um, because I had to make a choice, right? I had so many irons in the fire. Uh, I was running myself thin. You can't do everything that you want to do and be good at it all. So I had a, a, a career path choice to make and I chose the path of lawyer. And um, when I resigned from the police department, part of that was because I had had so many requests for representation on criminal matters or asking for advice. Well, what should I do if I'm ever pulled over? And I thought that that's just an opportunity that was passing me by um, because I wouldn't provide that information at the time. And so uh, I just made that decision. And, and uh, you know, I loved being a police officer. Um, but I love being a lawyer too. And, you know, I'm, I don't regret the decision I made, but I, I truly think had I gone the other direction, I would have been uh, extremely happy as well. So, you know, law takes up a lot of time just practicing law. What, what was your day like when you were a, a police officer and, a, and a, an attorney? Like, I mean, were you working just the weekends or would you go in at night and arrest people or how, how did that look? 
Yeah. So as far as police work goes, that was basically on the weekends because uh, it was part time. And then as far as the fire department goes, that would be during the week. So I'd work 12 hour shifts from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And as long as we didn't have runs, we could sleep. Uh, and I would schedule it. So if I had an important um, matter going on the next day in court, you know, I wouldn't schedule myself to work the night before just in case we were up all night. But that's also the difference between civil and criminal practice is most of the civil docket was in the afternoon. You know, most of my my civil hearings and civil court appearances started around 1 p.m. or so. So if I was working the night before and happened to be up all night, you know, I could go home, leave the firehouse, go back to bed for a few hours and then get up and, and still work and and make things happen. It was also a big difference in that I was single with no kids. I was dating my wife. Uh, who later became the young lady who later became my wife. But, um, you know, there's so much more flexibility when you don't have a family that you have to worry about. And my uh, my first apartment was a $400 a month rent. And that included uh, heat, water and an off street parking spot. So I didn't have a big uh, financial obligation each month. Um, so that helped a lot, too, as things were growing. Right on. So, um you were saying, I guess, that in about 2001 is when you took the jump to starting to take the DUI cases. Um, yeah. and, and you kind of explained your reasoning there. Um, when did you transition to kind of exclusively doing DUI and criminal cases? How long did that take you to get to? Yeah, I would say I would say that it grew really started to grow in 2004. Um, I mean, I remember the incident. So we were in Las Vegas for the uh, NACDL annual DUI conference. And, and what's, and what's a, NACDL for our listeners? Just to National listen. Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Okay. Uh, and every year they sponsor a uh, DUI symposium in Las Vegas. I think at the time it was at Caesars. Um, and so what we had done, when I say we, I mean myself and uh, other members of the of the office, we go out to Vegas every year, you get your continuing legal ed credits, you learn a lot, you have a good time. And so we made it an annual uh, adventure. Um, one of the sponsors, one of the premium sponsors of the program was uh, DUI.com. And as I'm standing there looking at their booth, they've got a, a big display with these monitors set up and the two DUI.com representatives are talking to folks about it. And I'm standing there and I, I start engaging the, um, his name's Bill, Bill Baker. I start talking to Bill and I said, Hey, tell me more about what, what you're offering here. And, and basically what it is, is it's an advertising opportunity where they have a directory listing. They own the URL DUI.com and they only take one attorney per County. And so we had, uh, I had signed up on the spot for it there for the counties that I um, worked in. At the time, it was just in Ohio, Southwest Ohio. And as I'm talking to Bill, I see another attorney from Cincinnati behind me in reflection in the monitors, eyeballing what's going on. And that's why I signed up on that spot, because I knew that if I had left, he probably was going to come in and sign up. Well, it's now almost 2021. And I've been a customer of DUI.com that entire time. And so while they're certainly not the even the majority of how I get my business, they were sort of the spark that led to the development of a DUI-centric practice. Now, it's not the only thing I do. I do civil litigation still. I do other criminal defense cases, you know, from drug trafficking and sexual assault and, and everything in between. But my my focus, what I would estimate is probably 95% of my practice is, is in DUI defense. Okay. And um, I guess speak a little bit about how your experience as a police officer informs your ability to defend people that are charged with DUI. Yeah, I think it plays, it plays a big part because I've literally arrested people for DUI. I have testified in court as a police officer. I was cross-examined by... Uh, Dave Parker, who's was uh, one of the best criminal defense lawyers in Cincinnati. He's he passed away a number of years ago, um, and and he shaped a lot of how I focused my practice or how I run my practice. In the sense that Dave um, came into court to 
ferociously defend his client, was respectful the entire time, but didn't pull any punches. And after he was done with me on cross-examination and just obliterated me, he stopped me in the hall and said, hey, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what you testified to do. And he actually gave me tips to do better. I'm a 20, you know, four, 25 year old police officer at that time. And it was very, very helpful to me to be treated that way by him versus how I've seen some other attorneys treat police officers where they're overly aggressive, unnecessarily personal, for some reasons appear to have an ax to grind. And that that's not me. That's not my personality. And that's not certainly how I, I would want to treat the police officer. I've literally had officers call me from the scene of a traffic stop to ask my opinion on something that they're involved in at that moment. And so to me, that means I've developed a relationship with the officers that I have in cases of mutual respect, right? doesn't mean I'm, I'm going to pull any punches. It doesn't mean I'm not going to go into to do my best to win for my client, but it means that we can do it in such a way that after we're finished with court, um, we can still be collegial with each other. Yeah. I mean, the way I think about it is, you know, if you've got two actors in a play and, you know, one of them is the villain and one of them is the main character, you know, it, there's nothing that says that they can't go out and, you know, have a beer after the play. Right. But while they're you know, while they're in costume, they have to do their job. And so it's kind of how I've always viewed it. You know, we don't have to. The police obviously are not all bad people, um, you know, like anything else. Like you, you're you're a good guy. <laughs> you were the Thank police. You, I appreciate that. And um, no, but uh, it's it's, you know, the exception to the rule certainly is where you've got somebody that you really don't want to you, you that you can't get that breakthrough with and have like a, a civil conversation with. And I think well, and I'll and I'll say this, though, from the other side, as a police officer, there were police officer friends of mine who viewed criminal defense attorneys as slimy, as bottom feeders, as the enemy. They really did. And so it goes both ways. And I think, but for the experience I had with Dave Parker, you know, 20 some odd years ago, um, that shaped the way that I looked at what a defense lawyer is, what their job is. Uh, and I think that it's still to a certain extent exists today, not just among police officers, but I had a, a rather jaw dropping conversation with some colleagues of mine who were personal injury lawyers, uh, who I was, we were discussing a case and, uh, it was, a you know, it's a, it's a significant, it's a sexual assault case, allegations of a, of a father and daughter. And, uh, it's, it's gut wrenching. It's sad. It's, it's a tough case. And I represent the father and it was like, well, how can you do that? How can you sleep at night? And this is coming from attorneys with 30 years of experience who are plaintiff's personal injury lawyers. And I thought, man, I guess it's not just, uh, the police officer who looks at the criminal defense lawyer and says, ah, he's a dirtbag. It, it really is a stigma. I think that crosses, all professions uh, are all, all levels of our profession, different scopes of it. And it and is something that sort of took me aback for a second. Well, how would you respond to that? I mean, obviously you don't think that you're a dirtbag. Um, what, what would you say to somebody that says, how can you possibly defend that person? What would be your response to that? Sure. Well, I'll, and I'll tell you, I'll give you a, an example. Uh, my wife uh, last year, year before was having an, an outpatient procedure done. Uh, but they had to put her under anesthesia. So she needed me to be there with her. And so we're in the recovery room and I happened to be talking to the nurse, uh, two nurses who were hilarious and my wife's a nurse. And so we were having a, a good time chatting and she's getting cleared to be able to leave. And it came up about what I do as a criminal defense lawyer. And the nurse said to me, oh man, that must be really hard to defend those people. How do you, you know, how do you sleep at night on that? And, and the, the discussion I had with her really revolved around her career. And I said, well, if the life squad pulled up right now and there's two patients, there's the police officer who's been mortally wounded and there's a bank robber who was robbing a bank and shot the police officer and he himself got shot and was mortally wounded. And you're assigned to take care of the bank robber. Are you going to give him any less medical care than you're giving my wife right now? 
or that you're giving the patient the bed over there? And she said, no, absolutely not. I said, well, there's your answer. I said, I have a job to do. I have an obligation to represent my client. And it doesn't mean I have to like my client. It doesn't mean I have to approve of what my client is accused of doing, but it means I have to do my job just like the nurse or the doctor uh, has to do their job to a patient that they may not personally care for or who is a terrible, terrible human being. They still have to do the surgery. They still have to give them that medical care. And she, you could see the epiphany in her eyes and she's like, oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. So that's how I answer it. Right on. Um, what's one thing you wish you'd known uh, when you began your career that you didn't know? Um, I, I think from a, from a business perspective, um, you know, I was a criminal justice major uh, at, at Xavier in part because I was able to get better grades being a criminal justice major than I would have been, say, a biology major. The only C I got in, uh, in college was a, uh, a C in my four-hour zoology lab. But the, the idea behind developing business skills from running your own practice, there's a lot that goes into it, right? I mean, you've got personnel issues, you've got marketing issues, you've got liability insurance, you've got rent, you've got staff. I mean, it's, there's a lot to it. And so I wish, I wish I had, I wish there were a program offered for young lawyers or for lawyers who have however many years of experience working in the corporate setting or in a firm that then want to go out on their own. Um, because I think that's, that was the biggest challenge. And I wish I had more knowledge of that going into it so that I could have, um, accelerated the growth of my operation more in the early years, as opposed to now, not that it's in the later years, but it's, you know, we're going on 21 years of practice here. What advice would you give somebody that wanted to pursue a career similar to yours? What, what, what would you tell the young lawyer that wanted to go out and hang their shingle and become a DUI lawyer? Yeah, I, I think, I, I think having that police experience for me was invaluable and, and not everybody can get that obviously. Um, but I do think that a lot of people would have the opportunity to apply for a job in a prosecutor's office. I think you have to see both sides. Um, and that's one thing that I never did. I was never a prosecutor. I would have enjoyed that, I think, um, and, and wish I had had that experience at some point. And so I, I would say if you're trying to become a DUI lawyer or a criminal defense lawyer, look first at your opportunities to do the other the work on the other side. Get some experience there. And then I think the biggest thing is probably finding a good mentor and not being afraid to have a few of them, people that you can ask questions to. I didn't really have one in the criminal arena. Um, I asked a lot of different people, a lot of different questions. Uh, but my mentor was, was really a civil attorney. Okay. So, um, get that experience however you can, uh, particularly if you can get it from uh, the other side and then have a mentor or several mentors. I think that's good advice. Yeah. Um, other than your mentor, what are some resources that have helped you along the way? What, if, what are some, you know, places that you've learned from, whether it be books or seminars that have really stuck with you? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously like the, the practice series books, you know, arrest search and seizure, the DUI book, the, the criminal practice series books that you can get from, from the major legal publications are, are very helpful. Um, I also think that I got, well, I don't think, I know I got a lot of help from joining the GCCDLA, Greater Cincinnati Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. So it was a, is a local association of criminal defense attorneys. And back in the day, in like the late 90s, early 2000s, we had meetings at a, in the basement of a restaurant called the Rookwood Pottery in Cincinnati. It's up in Mount Adams. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. And uh, it's a historic building. It was a beautiful restaurant. They had a, a function room in the basement. And once a month, we would meet down there. And someone from the group, typically somebody with you know, years and years of experience, would teach a CLE. So we would get a one-hour CLE. We get a nice little uh, buffet. You could have a drink if you wanted. And then you also had that open discussion sharing thing. 
And so what, what I found in the greater Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky area that I've heard from other attorneys in other areas doesn't exist for them. Uh, there's a lot of collegiality. There's a lot, I could call any attorney that I know in this area that does criminal defense and ask him a question, have them help me out, cover a court appearance. If I was sick or my kids are sick, uh, there's, there's just a, a really nice group of folks in this area. And so I would say that um, if you're a young lawyer, if you're trying to start out in criminal defense or DUI, find that group, whether it's a local bar association group, or we even had a, a private DUI defense only group that we didn't do any CLEs uh, for because we limited the membership to it. Um, but we would have speakers come, we'd have judges come, we'd have lawyers present on on topics that were strictly related to DUI defense. And that was a, a fantastic uh, resource. And so that, that's really, I think, valuable asset to have. And I would just take a minute to plug um, for our Kentucky attorneys, um, the Kentucky Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, um, puts out a lot of good content, particularly right now during COVID. Um, you know, I'm the president, full disclosure, this year. But uh, we're doing, you know, multiple webinars every month. And, and the membership really isn't that much. And the webinars aren't that much. And, you know, for somebody that's trying to get that experience right now to hear from some attorneys, I think it's a good opportunity. And so just to kind of echo what you're saying, Joe, um, those those opportunities are out there. It doesn't feel like it's as much as it used to be. I think people are, for whatever reason, more distant or learning on their own or, you know, pursuing, you know, technological CLE, kind of like we're doing right now. But um, I think for young attorneys and really any attorney that, you know, being a part of a group like that, that that's in your niche that really is focused on what you want to learn and what you practice, I think that's important too. Um, what's well, the, and the, and the, the KCDL DUI seminars are just phenomenal, Joe is a frequent speaker at our DUI <laughs> seminars, and they are. It really is. I mean, it's really good stuff. I mean, if you want to really understand the field sobriety tests, understand the intoxilizer, um, you know, and, and get prepared to actually have a DUI trial, I don't think there's anything else like it. And I think that, you know, Joe's, you know, is, is a really good trainer. I was trained by him um, at one of those conferences. And uh, I, I would encourage anybody that wants to practice DUI to look into it. And I think there are going to be at least two. Uh, put on by KACDL this year. So uh, we're excited about that. Yeah, late spring, early summer, and then again in the fall. Um, and what would you say, Joe, what would you say, switching gears a little bit, what's a common myth about DUI defense that you'd want to debunk? What are, what's something people believe that, you know, just isn't true or, you know, you can put the rest? Well, I, there, there's a couple of things. From, from, a, from a citizen's perspective, um, I think the biggest confusion that I hear from people when I'm talking to them is about the field sobriety tests and them thinking that they have to take them. And by field sobriety test, of course, I mean the, the walk and turn, the one leg stand, the, the horizontal gaze, nystagmus where the officer moves a stimulus across the field of vision. And there's also some non-standardized ones like the finger count, the count backwards and the partial alphabet. And officers are trained to, to not really explain the options that people have, but really present those tests or those exercises to folks in such a way as they don't feel like they have the, the choice to decline them. And so when I talk to folks and I say, oh, um, you took the field sobriety test, you know, why, why did you do that? Well, I didn't think I had a choice. You absolutely have a choice. You have the choice to lightly decline any test that the police offer you. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be a consequence. That doesn't mean that the officer is going to be more likely to arrest you because they've been frustrated in their investigation. Or if you decline to take the breathalyzer, it doesn't mean there's going to be a consequence for the refusal. Um, but w without a doubt, less is more. Giving the police less information, less evidence, provides you with more opportunity for a good defense. So I would say that the, the biggest misconception I have from, from clients or just folks that I've, I've talked to about this is their ability to decline the field sobriety tests. And you absolutely have the right to do that. So say I'm completely sober. I'm an innocent person. 
why would I not want to take one of those tests? Why would I not want to take the one-legged stand or the walk and turn? Yeah, well, and it's something we sometimes hear from clients that I kind of cringe at a little bit, which is, well, I couldn't pass those if I was sober. Uh, of course, implying that you weren't sober when you took them. Um, I've actually had officers, at least I can think of at least two occasions in jury trials where the officers testified that my client said that. And in both cases, it resulted still in an acquittal. And I talked to, I try to talk to the juries afterwards. Um, and, and they said, you know, when you're on the scene and the lights are going and the police are breathing down your neck and you're taking these, these tests, a phrase like that wasn't enough for them, the jury to say, Oh, well, he obviously meant that he was impaired. But, um, the reason you wouldn't want to take those, uh, are really numerous. Um, but the obvious ones are your physical ability to stand on one foot or to walk a straight line with your arms at your sides and follow the particular instructions to the letter um, may not be within your realm of ability. In other words, I have a herniated disc, L4, L5. I've had one back surgery. Eight months later, it re-herniated. It hurts all the time. So my ability to walk that straight line is going to be significantly compromised just because of my physical limitations. So if I'm there trying to show that, hey, I'm, they haven't had a drink in a week, you know, I'll take whatever test you want. I may still not do well. And the officer is supposed to look at these tests objectively uh, and look at how many clues are presented. And so if you raise your arms one time, more than six inches from your side for balance, and you have a gap of, say, three inches, it's inch and a half or more, three inches uh, between your feet, um, that's two clues. That's a failure of that test. And so uh, even though you may be completely sober, physical limitations uh, certainly can affect it. And then there's also the emotional factor, right? I mean, if I were to get pulled over, my heart rate elevates. Even when I was a police officer, my heart rate would still go up. There's a, a nervousness that comes with getting stopped by the police. Imagine that, then getting out of the car, then having traffic whizzing by you, worried about who might be uh, seeing you on the side of the road, and then having to perform these these tests well. It's just better off not to do them. Yeah, one thing I'm always really surprised by when I try to do the, the, the walk and turn in particular is just how hard it is to stand just with your feet heel to toe. Like you have to be yeah. relatively flexible to do that. I, I think a lot of people assume that it's just walk in a straight line, but it's, it's more like walk on a tightrope and make sure that your heel always touches your toe. And, and I think that unless you're a reasonably athletic person, or even if you are an, and a reasonably flexible person, that's a difficult position to get in. And so I, I agree. I think that I wouldn't want to take those tests if I were stopped, even, you know, if I were completely sober, um, I, I would of course tell the officer, Hey, give me a PBT, give me the portable test. But, um, you know, I, I think for most clients trying to make that decision for themselves, it's it, your advice is absolutely right. I mean, less is more. So, yeah, I mean, my general rule is along with the lines of what you just said, which is always decline the field test. If you truly are sober and you haven't had anything to drink, I would be happy to take a breathalyzer. Yeah. Um, so. Tell me about this DUI book uh, for 2020-21. What is it and and who should buy it? Yeah, sure. So, well, a little history on it. A couple of years ago, uh, I guess two editions ago, uh, Will Zevely, who's uh, an excellent DUI lawyer in northern Kentucky and has a you know, stellar statewide reputation as I always call him the Dean of DUI defense, uh, reached out to me, <coughs> excuse me, and said, Hey, uh, would you be interested in, in co-authoring this book with me? And I said, absolutely. Um, of course I had purchased the book for years and years and years and used it as a, as a reference and, and study guide for what I needed to do in my cases. And so, you know, the book was already written when I got involved um, but what he and I did is went through those first couple of, of years that I did it with him. Uh, we went through and made some minor changes. But for 2020, 2020, 2021, we, we added a lot. And so basically, this is the DUI practitioner's handbook. Now, it's not a DUI defense book. It's a DUI practitioner book. And one of the things that we did 
uh, and made a conscious effort to do and, and discussed is to, to write it from a neutral perspective. So in other words, I didn't write this, my, the sections that I worked on and that Will and I worked on together, we didn't write those to give defense lawyers a play. We wrote it so that we identified what the issues are, what the law is, and there may be some suggestions for a defense attorney, but I know I wrote several suggestions for prosecutors as well. And so we really tried to maintain a, a neutral plane on how we wrote the book um, so that it becomes a reference for everybody, for judges, for prosecutors, for lawyers. Um, it's not a book for your average citizen. I mean, certainly you could read it, but I'm sure there's a million other things that would be more interesting. Um, so, you know, that's what we really focused on in this edition was adding some additional stuff uh, and, and really reworking it. So I think it's got the biggest changes, uh, at least, you know, Wilbur's been doing it for, well, since its inception. And he said that this, this edition has the most changes of, of any that he's done. So, so why is that? What is, what are the new hot topics in DUI right now that, that people need to know about what's changed? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously there's, there's Senate bill 85, the new KIPP program. Um, so there's some changes in, in the way sentences are handed down in Kentucky for DUI cases. There's the removal of the responsibility for imposing license suspensions and managing those from the court and placing them with the transportation cabinet. Um, and, and I, we tried to work in ideas of the use of technology in the courtroom. Um, actually, the next edition is going to have a whole section on that. Um, and, and just trying to come at it from a, a, a perspective of the practitioner, giving practical ideas, deeper discussions into the issues. Um, one of the things, you know, West Publishing is who, who publishes the book. And one of the things that I'm lucky enough to get is access to Westlaw as, as being one of the co-authors. And so I've, I've signed up a couple of years ago, signed up for their uh, alerts. I can't remember their trade name for it. It's not Keysight Alert, but Case Alert, something like that. And, and once a week, I get all of the cases that, that reference KRS-189A. And so then I wade through those. And if there's any DUI cases that are relevant, I'm getting notified of those. So it's, it's a nice way for me to keep on top of the law. Uh, and then, of course, I keep it in a binder. And as we go through, um, we'll actually start next month for the 2021-2022 version. We work out about um, six to eight months. It's a good opportunity then to, to keep that information fresh and current. Um, and so, you know, that's that's kind of what we're doing with it right now. So w what are those issues right now that are being litigated in the in the appellate courts? I mean, what, what would you say is a, the biggest thing that's going on in DUI law right now, as far as a litigation perspective? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think, I think we're getting ready to see a lot of big issues come out with respect to the Senate bill 85 provisions of license suspensions. Um, I think there's still a lot of gray areas in the way the statute was written. Uh, I think there's a lot of unknowns. I know you and I discuss it on a daily basis, the, the troubles that we have with our clients getting their proper pretrial suspension information transmitted to the transportation cabinet and, and all of those things that are still being worked out. I mean, this is, we're, we're recording this the end of December of 2020. This law went into effect July 1st, 2020. We've had enough time that we shouldn't be having these issues. And so I think what we're going to see is litigation with respect to that. Other, other than those, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of good litigation going on surrounding um, suppression issues with respect to, to traffic stops. And uh, I was involved in some litigation down in Carroll County uh, a few years ago with respect to the HGN. Uh, I think that's right to be revisited. So uh, one of the elements in CL, uh, the sections in the CLE presentation that we cover is dealing with the HGN. What, what's the HGN I, again, just for the listeners? Yeah, sure. The HGN is the horizontal gaze nystagmus. Uh, it's a test that the officers administer looking for um, 
the way NHTSA describes it is invol the involuntary jerking of the eye. So they move a stimulus across the person's field of vision, they follow it, and the officer's looking for a bounce in the eye. And there's supposed to be a correlation between the nystagmus and someone's blood alcohol level. And what, what I have learned through the years in talking with, with um, optometrists, ophthalmologists, other physicians, um, and, and real science on it, and looking at some studies that have been done on it, is that it's, it, it doesn't do what it says it does. And so I think that we've sort of just painted with a real wide brush in some jurisdictions and say, well, that's fine. They can admit it. Or some jurisdictions will compromise and say, well, we'll admit it. But the only conclusion the officer can testify to is that the results of the HGN showed the presence of alcohol. That's a pretty good compromise, in my opinion, because in most instances, the defendants admit to having a drink or two or three or whatever. Um, the, the mere presence of alcohol doesn't mean that you're intoxicated. And so um, I can kind of live with that compromise. But I do think that that HGN is, is ripe to be revisited and, and relitigated through the courts. OK. And um, would that be by a Daubert challenge or? Yeah, I think ultimately that's probably what happens. Um, that's what I did in Carroll County. Uh, and in that case, kind of died in the trial court. The, the um, county attorney filed a notice of appeal and then withdrew the appeal. And so it sort of just sat there. But I, I think that when the opportunity presents itself for us to do that again, and I know there's one similar uh, that's pending right now in northern Kentucky in Campbell County. And so I'm watching that pretty closely. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And it'll be in the 2021-2022 book if it does. Awesome. Um, who are three people that have been influential to you as far as your practice? I think you named one, but um, are there other lawyers that have inspired you? Well, yeah. And, you know, it, it goes even from from outside the, the lawyer realm. You know, I, I give credit where credit's due. My mother uh, really pushed me to go to law school. I was kind of on the fence about it, if I wanted to do it or not. Um, I had just graduated from Xavier, was getting ready to graduate from Xavier. I'd become a police officer at that point. And she said, you know what, just do it. Just go that direction. I was lucky enough to get into UC, had a wonderful experience there. So had I not had that, that push, uh, it probably wouldn't have happened on my own. So I'll give my mom credit for that. Um, I also had a, a unofficial field training officer at Blue Ash. His name's Dave Hoffman. He's since passed away. Um, he wasn't my actual FTO. My actual FTOs were great. Um, but Dave had a, uh, a presence and a ability, social ability to interact with people that was really second to none. And it was all natural for him, but watching him the way he did it, you know, allowed me to kind of see a, a good way to treat people, number one, and because he treated everybody the same, you know, race, religion, degree of, of seriousness of crime or victim of crime or witness, everybody was treated with respect. And so that was a, a big influence on me as well. And then as far as lawyers go, I mean, there's, there's so many in the criminal defense arena that helped me with questions and with, um, you know, procedural issues that I had. But I would say the one attorney that I alluded to earlier, the civil lawyer, his name's Bill Struby. Um, the way I met him is I had, was representing a, a coworker at the fire department. She had been injured in an auto accident and um, I was helping with the case and it was an uninsured, underinsured motorist case. And I had gotten in over my head. And I said, this, this is higher level than I'm ready for. I'd only been a lawyer for, you know, one or two years and this is higher level than I'm, than I'm ready for. So I reached out to a couple folks and Bill Struby's name was given to me. He said, call Bill, he'll help you with it. So Bill came in as co-counsel. We resolved the case successfully and uh, I really enjoyed working with him. And he asked me if I wanted to share space with him. The building that I was in at the time was being converted to luxury condos. And so they were not renewing folks leases. And my lease was one of those that was getting ready to come up. And uh, he was in a high rise building downtown and said, well, why don't you 
come over here. I've got an extra office. And so we shared space and gosh, we were, we were office mates for uh, over 10 years. He's retired now, but uh, he, he was great. He was a big influence in, in my life. And he and his wife, Kim are wonderful folks. And my wife, Mary and I enjoy going out to dinner with them. And uh, yeah. So those, those would be the three I would say. Okay. Now it's time for our ethical dilemma. Every month, I'm going to take a few minutes out of each episode to pose an attorney ethics hypothetical for our guest. These hypotheticals are based on Kentucky Bar opinions and real MPRE questions. Each segment lasts about 12 minutes or 0.2 hours. Listen to all 12 monthly episodes of our podcast in a year and you walk away with enough continuing education and ethics credits. Today's hypothetical has to do with blogs and social media. Joe, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Question number one, and this comes from KBA Ethics Opinion 447, issued January 18th, 2019. In a blog or other social media, may a lawyer reveal information relating to the representation of a current or formal client without the client's consent? Short answer, no. Um, You know, social media is a huge part of our lives. It's a huge part of marketing and advertising and can be really valuable, right? Um, But it can also be really dangerous. And there's, I think, a um, tendency, my estimation, there's a tendency for folks to overshare personal information in social media. That's my opinion. As a lawyer, uh, we have to be very careful that we're not sharing someone else's personal information, i.e. details of their case or discussions without their consent. Now, let me give you a, let me give you an example. I represented a gentleman in Boone County on a uh, DUI case. Uh, he was never been in trouble before, was very upset that he had gotten charged with a DUI. It was a challenging case. He was going the wrong way down a limited access highway for about a mile. Um, but at the end of the day in assessing the case, A, I felt he was innocent, which doesn't matter how I feel about it, but that's what I felt. And B, uh, he was um, presented with a good defense, right? I mean, the facts weren't very strong, except that one really bad one. And so uh, we talked about it and, you know, we worked our way through the system. We did our pretrial practice. We did our motions. We did our discovery and it it came time for trial. And he was kind of getting cold feet. He said, well, I don't I don't really want to do this. And I told him, I said, look, I said, we have to we have to try this case. I said, we just have to do it and convinced him. I mean, it was ultimately his decision, but I strongly encouraged it. Long story short, we won. And. I felt that his journey was very consistent with folks that I've represented in the past. They're never been in trouble before. They're scared to death. They don't understand the process and they're looking for, for strong guidance and what to do. So I talked to his name's Bill. So I talked to Bill and I said, Hey, I'd like to really share your story. And so we got his consent in writing, of course. Uh, And he came in and he videotaped two one hour long podcast episodes, video podcast episodes that we published on our, on our social media platform talking about his journey. So for me, utilizing somebody like Bill was, is a benefit to other folks because they get to hear from a normal person. They get to hear what their emotions, their feelings were as they went through this from that perspective. Um, could I have done that without his consent? Obviously not. Could I have told his story like I just did without his consent? No. And so that's that's critical. Lawyer-client relationships are special. And they're, they're probably, correct me if you think I'm wrong, Brad, but they're probably one of the most protected relationships in, in the nation. I mean, even in some states, more so than the physician-patient uh, relationship. And so holding that in the esteem that it needs is critical. And and social media is one area where it's easy to post information. It's easy to tell your success story by outlining a a client's case, which is fine as long as you have their permission. But if you don't, the winner. Okay. Um, Yeah. And, and the bar association obviously came to the same conclusion. Um, You know, they said that, you know, rule 1.6 or, you know, as we have awkwardly numbered in our in our state, Supreme Court rule 3.130 
per n 1.6 per n a defines confidential information as information relating to the representation of a client, a broader definition than is found in the ABA model code of professional responsibility and the restatement of the law governing lawyers. The model code and the restatement limit lawyers' duty of non-disclosure to communications protected by the attorney-client privilege and information that might work to the client's disadvantage. Our rule, Rule 1.6a of the ABA model rules of professional conduct, is not so limited. Unless one of the exceptions in 1.6b applies, 1.6a requires a lawyer to obtain client consent before revealing any information relating to the client's representation. So that brings us to question number two. May an attorney reveal the identity of a former client in a blog or other social media without the client's consent? I think the obvious answer is no. Um, you know, the, the client attorney-client relationship is one based on trust and confidentiality. And so revealing that person's information uh, is, is certainly uh, ill-advised and would be unethical. Um, and again, like talking about the story about Bill, he consented to it. He was happy to share that information. And so it's, it's not just that you can't do it. It's you've got to think about what it is that you're trying to do. And I, I think that may not affect the um, whether it's ethical or not, but I think you got to look at what is your motivation? Why would you want to do that? Do you want to share the information to tout yourself as a great lawyer? Do you want to share the information to try and help folks so that they don't make the same mistake or, or that the same injustice isn't um, laid upon them as it was your client? And so there's lots of different reasons why it could do it. I don't think the reason matters as far as the ethicalness of it. Um, but I think if you look at it and say, gee, I want to share this person's story so that someone else doesn't make the same mistake or that someone else knows what to do in this type of situation, whether it's criminal defense or personal injury or small business litigation, um, talking to the client about it, getting their consent lets you do that. Right. And, and the bar ethics opinion came down on the same way. I mean, they said, no, um, you can't reveal the identity of a current or former client. Um, without consent, um, it's a little it's a little more complicated than that. It, there was an ethics opinion uh, E two fifty three, and and then in that opinion, the committee said that absent consent, a lawyer may reveal names and addresses of clients only one where the information is in the public record as a result of the attorney representation, or two where the circumstances make it obvious that the client does not expect confidentiality as to the existence of the attorney client relationship or three, where the client has specifically authorized in writing the release of the information. And so, um, you know, they talked about some potential justifications for releasing client names, uh, like a merger of firms would be, you know, for conflict checks and things like that. Um, but ultimately, um, they said that there's no justification for revealing information without consent in a blog or other social media. Uh, they cited to a case out of Wisconsin where a lawyer was suspended for blogging about her clients. They cited to a, a case uh, out of Indiana where a lawyer was disbarred for writing a book about a former client. And now those cases involve negative disclosures, uh, but the rule against disclosure applies to all information, whether positive, neutral, or negative, they noted. So um, be very careful about this. Um, so Joe, I guess what I would, I kind of already answered this, but question three would be, is there an exception to these these other rules for information contained in a public record? That is, can I release you know my client's citation without their consent if it's in the if it's in the court file? No, and and I I think it's a little counterintuitive, um, at least in, in my estimation. It seems like well, it's if it's in the public domain uh, that should be able to to be released to whomever for whatever reason. But the, the reality is the relationship between the attorney and the client, I think, is really what the focus of this rule is and where the, the sanctity comes in. And, you know, the, the clearly the best practice is to hold all information obtained from the client close to the chest. And, and protect that relationship just because you can find something out some other way doesn't then allow the lawyer to transmit that information um, at his or her discretion. The, the protected relationship is between the attorney and the client. Right. And once again, the bar said no. I mean, subject to that, you know, exception earlier about, you know, client 
you know, name and address and things like that. They said that a lawyer's duty of confidentiality extends to both current and former clients and that Rule 1.9C2 requires that a lawyer not reveal information relating to the lawyer's representation of a client, except as the rules would permit or require with respect to a client. Hence, a lawyer may not reveal confidential client information, even though such information may be contained in a public record. However, a lawyer may use information relating to the representation of a former client if the information has become generally known. And that's, you know, Rule 1.9C1. And there's an ABA opinion on that, too, that they cite, too. And so I think that while it's a little bit oblique for me as to, I guess, a little bit opaque, I should say, as to what the bar was trying to get at, I think that if maybe... If something's published in the newspaper or something like that, if it's that widely broadcast at that point, they're saying that, well, that might be an exception. But um, I think that merely just being in a court file, um, I would be very hesitant to publish anything about without consent. And so, I mean, I'd be hesitant to talk. I mean, I would want, even if my client had been in the newspaper, I would run it by my client first. I would say, hey, you know, I want to talk about this case on our blog. And I, I think that that's the safe thing. And I think it's, it's ultimately the right thing to do by the client. Yeah, because, you know, again, what is what is the purpose of giving a news interview? What is the purpose of writing a blog article about it? And, you know, is that furthering the relationship with the client? It, it might and it can. But I think that's a critical conversation to have with the client. And uh, my feeling is I would never do any of that stuff, sharing information, giving an interview with the news, absent a, dis- a discussion with the client and their consent. And if they said no, I'm, I'm trying to remember there was an incident where there was an incident where we wanted to talk to the media about a, a case and the client said no. And I thought it was better for us to talk to the media than not. And in this particular instance, the client didn't authorize it. So we said no comment. And that's that's their prerogative. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, Joe, I'd like to thank you for uh, participating in the first ethical dilemma. Um, We got our we got our 12 minutes in just about. um, And so I think that we satisfied that. Um, Do you have any other thoughts on ethics um, that you'd like to leave leave us with before we go back to the main interview? Gosh, you know, I I think that uh, it's it's an easy trap to fall into because sometimes we lose sight of what our obligation is of what our mission is. And if you just stop and step back and think, hmm, this doesn't seem or feel right, usually you can find the answer. Uh, you can you can do research and get ethic opinion, ethics opinions and, and review it yourself. You can also call different bar associations, have hotlines uh, and ethics lawyers that are able to answer those questions for you. The resources are there. So I would just say, and I think it's easier as a younger or newer lawyer to fall into those traps because you're still kind of making your way. And uh, I would just say that using caution, slowing down, thinking it through uh, is always the right answer. And ultimately, if it doesn't feel right by the client, it's probably wrong. So yeah. 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 Well, switching gears back, um, what what makes you feel really inspired? What makes you feel like your best self when you're practicing law? Um, so, so I think there's, there's two things. Um, when I'm dealing with a client and, and I heard this the other day uh, from a client that made me feel really good is when they say, Oh, I was so worried. And after having talked to you, I feel so much better. Well, I haven't changed the facts of the case. I haven't won anything yet. Um, I've just talked to that person. I've taken someone who's who's in crisis because they've been charged with a crime uh, and explained the process to them, explained the law to them, and explained what I'm going to do to help them. And sometimes people just need to hear that. You know, they jump on the internet, they're reading reading websites or articles about what it means to be charged, and they have no idea what they're even looking at. I mean, I've had many, many people seem surprised when I tell them that their first offense, non-aggravated DUI is not a felony. They think that's it. They're, this, is, this is a felony. This is the end. And so being able to provide that information to a client and have that positive feedback where it says, oh, I feel so much better now is really kind of one of those ah moments. Um, the other one is 
if a prosecutor or a judge after you've had a contested hearing says, man, that was really good. I, I like that. I mean, I think it strokes our ego. Um, I had a jury trial last year in a, in a jurisdiction in Ohio and, uh, I was lucky enough to win. And then I was back on another case and copying some discovery in the, in the clerk's office. And the judge came through and he said, Oh, I forgot to tell you that trial you did a couple months ago. He said, you really, you did a really good job. That was really impressive. And, uh, I said, thank you. And, you know, acted humble, but it made me feel really good inside. So I like that. Yeah. No, I think we all like that feeling. Um, this is a little bit out there, but if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. It's funny that you mentioned that because um, one of the things that I had looked at from a from a marketing perspective is is billboards. And, you know, there's as you and I know, because you and I have discussed this uh, many times and you're very well versed in this area. There's a difference between brand and direct marketing. And so by brand marketing, I mean, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Goodyear, right? Names that you recognize, you understand what their products are and their reputation. Whereas direct marketing would be, um, say, a Google AdWords that says, have you been charged with DUI? Call us for a consultation. And the person clicks on it because they've been charged with a DUI and need a consultation. So I would be very interested in doing a, a billboard campaign trying to build brand. Um, I don't know if it's feasible at our scale because we're not Coca-Cola or Pepsi um, relative to the cost of the billboards. Um, but what would I put on it? I don't know. Um, I would probably put something real simple, um, a call to action, an identifier like DUI, free consultation or DUI, call us and a phone number that they can remember. Um, not very creative. Maybe that's why I wasn't a marketing major, but I don't know. That, that's probably what I would lean towards at this point. No, no, that, that's, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that billboards are tough. I think it works for some firms. I know some people are completely, you know, find them distasteful or, or you know, crass, but um, it obviously, it, it can work for some people. And I think that, you know, I think that there's an ethical component to marketing too, that if you're really good at what you do, there's nothing wrong with letting people know that you do it. And so I, I think that I'm not suggesting that we get billboards, but um, if people are doing that and as long as they're putting out good services for clients, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with telling people, hey, we're available. This is what we do. I, you know, I know that the profession has changed a lot, particularly in the last, I guess, what, since, the, you know, the 80s, um, as far as what we can talk about marketing. I mean, yeah. but um, I, I, I think that, you know, that's it's it's interesting, but um no, you're right, though. I mean, you know, uh, I'm not the type of guy that would that would do if we did personal injury that would have, you know, a billboard that has some guy with a cheesy smile holding up a check and a crashed car in the background. You know, I, I think that from my perspective, the marketing flavor that I like to have is sort of that calm confidence. You're going to be OK. We're going to take care of this. This is not our first time. We've got lots of experience and we'll get through this together sort of message. How you transmit that through words and images, I think, is where the art comes in. Um, but that's that, that's my feeling on what I would do if I had a billboard. Maybe okay. we'll do one. Who knows? Maybe we'll put your face on there, Brad. I don't think anybody wants that. There's a reason this is a podcast, not a movie, but uh, I guess there is a video component for some of y'all. But um, in any event, um, Joe, we're almost done. Um, is there anything that you would have liked me to ask you that I didn't? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think we've, we've talked about a lot of stuff, right? I mean, we talked about the 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 journey from from becoming a lawyer to building a practice to, um, to the book to DUI law, I, I guess. I guess what I would just say is that, you know, practicing law is a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's very challenging at times. It's sometimes heartbreaking, sometimes inspiring, and that it's just one of those career choices where you have to be able to roll your sleeves up and just keep moving forward no matter what happens. I think especially in our 
um, our area, you know, lawyer suicide rates and depression and alcoholism run, run high. And I think it's because we are working with and on society's problems, people's problems. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you feel the same way, but for as a defense lawyer for 20 years, I, I feel like I'm doing lots of different things, a large component of which <clears throat> is trying to ask, beg prosecutors for opportunities, deals, reductions, plea bargains. I'm making excuses for people's bad conduct um, and saying, oh, you know, come on, that he's whatever the situation is, is doing better now, or he's got this under control or he's going to counseling. You know, you're always, you're trying to help people obviously, but you're articulating all of this in court. And sometimes that gets a little depressing. And so I would say that um, knowing that that's part of our job, knowing that that's part of our, our mission to help people, that you just have to look at each case individually and, and not lose sight of, of the big picture. I think that's a great place to end today's episode. I'd like to thank you all for listening. As always, I'm the host of the Kentucky Lawyer, Brad Clark, criminal defense lawyer in Lexington, Kentucky. If you'd like to connect with me online, you can find me on our website at surreylaw.com, S-U-H-R-E-L-A-W.com. If you'd like to get continuing education credit for listening to today's program, go to kylawshow.com for more information. There you'll find the written material and the evaluation, as well as the code to enter to get your credit. I'd like to thank Joe for joining us today. Thank you, Joe, for being our guest. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate it. If you know someone that would make a great guest for the show, please don't hesitate to reach out. Send me an email at bclark at surreylaw.com. As always, I'm Brad Clark, and this is The Kentucky Lawyer. We'll see you next month.